Amen. From the Gospel of John to the first epistle of John. 1 John chapter 3 this morning. If you have a Bible and would turn there with me. 1 John 3 verses 14 through 18. And we're going to consider the idea of the display of Christ-like love. That's why we read John 10 because he said, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And that is the greatest show of love ever possible. A couple weeks ago, we began this section in 1 John 3 where John moves to this exhortation that the saints must love one another, and he began with a call to love, showing the priority of love, that it was a command given from the past, and now he moves to showing what that love looks like. John, through his letter, is giving us a series of tests, a way that we can identify whether or not we or someone else is in the faith. And the test we are looking at now is this exhortation to brotherly love. It's in this love that we can see if we are in the faith, that we must love one another as Christ has loved us. And this passage and this this charge really goes through the end of chapter 4 with a little interruption at the beginning of chapter 4. But in the rest of chapter 3, we, see, we saw last time, a couple weeks ago, that there was a past call to love. We see these present results of love. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll see the future results of love. That It, it gives us hope and confidence before the judgment and the throne of the Lord. So let's read our text. Then I want to ask the Lord to help and to bless our time together as we study. If you're Abel, I invite you please to stand with me as we show honor at the reading of Holy Scripture. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 through 18. This is God's Word. It's holy, inerrant, and inspired. Every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. May the Lord bless his word, and may he write it upon our hearts so that we are sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. You may be seated. Now join me, and let's go before the Lord's throne of grace in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you, and we give you all praise and honor and glory, for you and you alone are worthy. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Splendor and majesty is before you. As the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Your creation, O God, is full of your glory, and it tells of the mighty works of your hands. Lord, I pray that we would come before you now then with humble hearts that understand your greatness, that understand your holiness, and hearts and minds that understand that we are but sinners who are saved only through your grace, apart from works. We bring no merit, no good thing. It's only because of your grace shown and made available through Christ that we have access to you. Lord, you give us your word to instruct us, to correct us, to reprove us, to rebuke us. You give your word to train us in righteousness, to equip us for every good work. And Lord, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would accomplish that very thing, that you would use your word to make us more like Christ. 
Lord, the topic before us today is one that is abused in our time, it's one that's misunderstood in our time, and it's one that we can easily kind of just think that we've got it and, and check it off and move on. But Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and to hear and to receive and apply this truth. Lord, may we understand the great importance of loving one another. May we have wisdom to properly and rightly practice the command before us. May we joyfully look upon the one whom we pattern our love after, Jesus Christ, who gave his life to show his love. Lord, I ask and I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us in this time for as humans and as mortals, we are weak and frail and our minds will so easily wander and drift and not give the attention to your truth that we should. But I pray, Lord, for your glory and by your Holy Spirit that you would make us attentive to the truth, that you would sanctify us by your truth, that we would be made more like our Savior and that from our time in your word today and our time gathered to worship today, I pray that our lives would be transformed in such a way that we give honor and glory and praise to you. Lord, how we thank you for the cross. How we thank you, Lord, that at that cross, your wrath was poured out upon your Son. Our guilt and our shame was laid upon his shoulders. Every sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed was laid upon him. And Christ is the great saving king, bore wrath perfectly, fully, completely for us. So that we could be given entrance into eternal life. Lord, would you grip us and transform us with a view of that great love of our Savior. May we live lives that show that we are his people, his possession, ransomed and redeemed from every lawless deed. Help us, Lord, by your spirit, for your glory. I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. John 13 the night that he was betrayed and arrested, the night before he would go to the cross, his command to his disciples was that they must love one another. The Apostle John, who writes our text today, was certainly present for that, as he was present for most, if not all, of Jesus' public teaching and ministry. Evidenced by our passage today, those words clearly had a profound, lasting effect on John, the beloved apostle, the beloved disciple. That command to love stuck with him, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, those words were recalled to his mind some maybe 60 years later as he writes to a church facing all kinds of difficulty. He could tell them, stand firm, resist error. Don't, don't give in when you face tribulation and temptation. But he says, you must love one another, because he heard and he trusted Christ. You know, we could describe the Christian life in many different ways with many different words to kind of sum up what it means to be a Christian or the outworking of being a Christian. We talk about being justified. We talk and we ask the Lord for, we talk about and ask the Lord for personal transformation in our lives. We talk about being united with Christ, talk about being alive in him, being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And we could give so many more descriptions. But according to Jesus, 
The world most plainly and evidentially knows that you belong to Christ by your love for one another. Loving the brethren proves that you know and love Christ. And we could stop there and just let that thought resonate on us for the rest of the day. But not only did Jesus instruct with that command, but he was the greatest and the fullest and the clearest example and picture of it. John 15 Verses 12 and 13, commonly known verses, Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. We say, how did Jesus love? He, he explains, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's the example we are called to follow. But beloved, let's understand that loving one another, even to the point of being willing to lay down our lives, will not save you. And it will not save another, but that type of love is visible if you're alive in Christ, if he is your king, if he has come in and taken over rule and ownership of your life, you will love like he commands. Jesus really instructed this self-sacrificing love in some ways is the climax of the Christian life. It's the personal and the horizontal component, really, of the great commandment. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he gave two answers. He said, the great commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. Really, the second flows out of it that you love your neighbor as yourself. This is how the world knows that you belong to Christ. I've set all that up because I want us to understand that this call to love is not a minor doctrine. It's not something that we just kind of hear and, and kind of give a head nod to and then we move on. No, we need to think deeply about what it looks like to love one another. We need to examine ourselves honestly to see if we showcase the love that Christ has commanded us to show one another. As John writes on this topic, we see that there are components of Christian love that not only meet spiritual needs, that not only look out for the best spiritual interest of another, but this love, John says, also meets physical needs. And Jesus showed that time and time and time again in his earthly ministry. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, at the end of our time this morning. So to, to kind of pare this down, to, to give us a, an overall direction, an overall theme for our time together this morning, I offer you the following. Christ-like love is displayed by personal sacrifice that meets every genuine need. But let's add in that we do that with the understanding that the greatest need is the truth and the gospel. Christ-like love is displayed by personal sacrifice that meets every genuine need with the understanding that the most important need, the utmost, the greatest need is the truth and the gospel. Sometimes meeting a need, sometimes not meeting a physical need, actually serves spiritual benefit. That's where we need wisdom, we need discernment, and we need a gracious and generous spirit. We need to practice discernment in order to rightly love one another. So we're going to look at this text in three headings, kind of three phases, and see what our love proves. We're going to see after whom our love is patterned. And then we're going to get real practical and see the practice of this love. So verses 14 and 15, love's proof. Love's proof. What does our love prove? John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what do we have here? We have a contrast. That's what John constantly does. He gives this plain and clear contrast about those who have life and those who are still dead in their sins. And what is the distinguishing line? It's love. Love for the brethren makes clear whether or not you are in the faith. Love's proof, if you love or if you don't love, love proves whether or not you're in the faith. And so let's break down just exactly how 
love proves your life or your lack of life in Christ. John begins, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We know. It's a clear, definitive, primary, important proof of our life if we love. John doesn't say that most who genuinely love are saved. He doesn't say that you will typically know those who are in Christ by whether or not they love one another. He says, by this we know. It's indicative mood. It's the active voice. It's the perfect tense. So this is a knowledge that has has existed, continues to exist, and will exist in the future. It's an ongoing, active knowledge. That should be encouraging to you. John says at the end of this letter in 1 John 5, 13, that these things I have written so that you may know if you have eternal life. Written these things so that you know if you're in Christ. We know that we're in Christ by whether or not we love. And so this should give us assurance. Friend, this should also be a manner in which you examine yourself. If it gives you assurance in the positive, it can also give you assurance in the negative. If you lack love, the text clearly shows that you are not in Christ. That's the question. Do you want to know that Christ is in you? I think everyone in this room would answer that in the affirmative. I want to know whether or not I'm in Christ and he is in me. This is the way. This is how you know So if you struggle with assurance, let this be a practical test. This is Scripture. This Scripture says this is how you know whether or not you pass from death into life, and it's whether or not you love the brethren, whether or not you have a love for Christ that works itself out in a love for your fellow saints. But what about the object of this love? We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, because we love our fellow saints. Now, be clear, this is not an excuse to be hateful or to be unloving to those who are not in the faith. We know from Scripture that we are called to love others. We are called to love those who hate us, to love our enemies, to pray for those who are enemies and those who persecute us. But it's clear that John's focus is that we love one another, that you love your fellow saints. Yes, we love the world, but that is a different love with a different outworking to a different end with a different goal than loving one another. So we have to ask the question, if we're going to be good Bible students, we have to ask the question, why does the Lord place such an emphasis on loving one another? Why is the emphasis really, you know, well, a lot of people today would flip it on its head and say that the world knows that you're in Christ because of the love that you show for the lost, and yes, we do love the lost, but John says it's by our love for one another. Why does the Lord give that emphasis? Let's think about it. Let's put on critical thinking hats and understand why the emphasis. Mutual love is most clearly displayed in selfless fellowship together. It's a union that is built upon what you can do for someone else and not what they can do for you, but it's a mutual union in that. So you are striving to selflessly love your brother or sister, and they, not in return, but because they're in Christ, are striving to do the same for you. Well, friends, if we think about it, that's much like the Lord's love for us. What did Paul say in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5? In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. He didn't predestine us to adoption because of something that we could do for him. He didn't predestine us to adoption because he was lonely and needed our fellowship. He didn't even predestine us to adoption because he would lack glory if he carried out wrath. The Lord is glorified in exercising his wrath. The Lord calls us because of the kind intention of his will. So why does he call us to show love to the brethren? Because it's in those relationships that we can most imitate the love that the Lord has for us. You know, there's a good picture of this type of love in a 
human relationship. Jonathan and David. 1 Samuel 23, then we'll read from 2 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel 23, uh, we'll do verse 15 through 18. You know, Jonathan, the son of King Saul, David, the heir to the throne that Saul hated. In 1 Samuel 23, Saul was about ready to kill David. In verse 15, we read this. Now, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and he went to David and encouraged him in God. Now, that's love right there, to go and encourage someone in the Lord. Then David, he, or Jonathan, he said to David, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And my father, Saul, knows that also. And so the two of them, Jonathan and David, they made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. Now you have to understand that Jonathan was probably the heir to the throne, physically speaking. He, he probably could have had in his mind, hey, when my father passes, I might be the heir to the throne. And yet, Therefore, out of nothing that is gained to him other than loving his friend and honoring the Lord, he says, David, I'm going to take care of you, and you will be the king of Israel. You will assume and ascend the throne. So that's mutual love, and we see that if you flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 9, we kind of can see the reciprocation of that love from David. You guys know I have trouble with names, and I'm going to try to say this name of Jonathan's son at some point. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. It says, Then David said, this is after Jonathan's death. David says, Is there yet anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Not for Saul's sake, but for Jonathan's sake. My beloved friend, is there anyone left in his lineage that I can show kindness to? And then drop down to verse 7. This is Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan that David is speaking to. David said, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Kindness for the sake of Jonathan, who had already gone into eternity, and yet David, because of his love for his friend, shows this, this great kindness to Jonathan's son. That is mutual love for the brethren. And if we walk in this love, friend, do you see that there is a perfect fellowship that we have with the Lord? Back to 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That is communion and fellowship with the Lord, to pass from death into life. What did Jesus say about eternal life in John 17? This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, passing from death to life, exists for the purpose of knowing and enjoying and experiencing the perfect glory of God forever and ever. So we show that fellowship and that communion here on earth with one another, and we know that we will go to eternity to share in that fellowship with the Lord. The end of John 17, as Jesus was closing that high priestly prayer, verses 22 and 23, he said, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, my disciples, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What was the goal of Christ in all of this? It was the unity of the saints to walk in a unity that parallels the unity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Christ desired that we see his glory, that we be perfected in unity and receive the internal joy of knowing and experiencing his goodness forever. Love in the local church then should, should work itself out in light of this. It should show a unity in nature and purpose 
that parallels the unity of the Trinity. Just as Father, Spirit, and Son are distinct persons, they have that singular God-deity nature. They have that singular purpose of the ultimate glory of God, and we should be likewise with one another. We are unique individuals, gifted in unique ways, wired in unique ways from the Lord. But we have a united nature because we're new and alive in Christ, and we have a united purpose that we glorify Him in all that we do. So genuine love assures us that we have passed from death into life. But then John shows us the opposite side of this proof. The opposite side of this love is hatred, when you do not love one another. At the end of verse 14, he says, He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, do you see that this really goes all the way back to your nature? He who does not love abides in death. Abides means to stay or to remain in a situation or a place. You were in death. Everyone was in death, in the flesh. We all died in Adam. And if you don't love, you remain in that state of death and decay. We need to consider the impacts then of this instruction. We could say that the natural state is death and hate or death and self-love. And then you start to understand the outworking of why John says we must love one another. Because you have these two opposing forces. Those in Christ and those who are still in the flesh. And the ones who are still in the flesh hate. They're in death. They serve self. The only way that we can display the fullness God's unifying and united love is by loving one another. That is the practice of Christ-like love. So it's important to realize, I think especially for newer believers, but for all believers, it's important that we realize that Christian, Christ-like love then does not look like the world's love. Because the world loves out of selfishness, out of pride, out of ambition and conceit and deceit. And so our love is going to look completely opposite, completely different than worldly love. John then broadens this out. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Again, you see, you see that flavor of John having heard Jesus' teaching. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So let's cross over to Matthew Matthew 5, verse 22, just for a moment to kind of understand the breadth of that statement. Matthew 5, verse 22, Jesus said, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So do you see how far this statement goes? It's not just that boiling over hatred that that we see in worldly people, but it's that arrogance, that pride, that insolence where where you look down upon others and and you think you've got it all together and you look at someone else and you say, you good for nothing, you, you fool, you know nothing, you can't do anything, let me show you the way. Jesus says, John says, that that is a hatred that flows out of a dead soul. So summarily, to lack love proves that you remain in death and darkness. To love one another proves that you are alive in Christ and His Spirit is in you. Moving to verse 16 then, we've had love's proof, now let's consider love's pattern. Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. As clear as John can write it, as clear as it can be made, 
John says, we know love by this. We know what love looks like. We know what we ought to be willing to do and what we ought to pursue by the example and pattern of Christ, and it is that he laid down his life for us. And Jesus spoke of this really throughout his ministry, but one of the more striking times was in that passage in John 10 that we read, John 10 verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just kind of follow that pattern of thought for a moment. A keeper of many sheep. One of those sheep is in danger. And the good shepherd, because of his love for the sheep, lays down his life to rescue that sheep. That's Christ's love. That is our pattern and example and standard of love. Let's take that picture even further. Because Christ is deserving of us taking that picture further to to see his love even in a deeper way. Christ is not only the good shepherd, but he's also the king. Think about a king, a monarch, a president, some kind of civic ruler and leader laying down his life for one of the dirtiest, weakest, vilest, most helpless of his subjects. Such a sacrifice is unheard of in this world. And and frankly, such a sacrifice doesn't really make sense in this world. Do you realize that in consideration of Christ, his importance as the king, his, his glory as the king is infinitely greater than anything that we could ever consider with another person, with a, with a physical earthly person and king or ruler. And yet this king laid aside all of his privileges of deity. He laid aside everything that was rightfully his, and he came to die for his people. He came to bear a curse for those whom he had created in his own image. So we must understand, just thinking about that, that the path to and the show of Christian love is distinctly countercultural. It goes so against everything that our world teaches us. Even the greatest of us must be willing to lay down our lives for one another. You know, you would think, you know, it may not behoove us for a president to lay down their lives for a general population person. All kinds of upheaval, all kinds of difficulties would come if we had a good, godly president who did that. But Christ did it. Doesn't make sense in the world, but Christ did it. And we must understand from that that the way that we love one another is so different. It's so counter from what we see and what makes sense in the world. The pattern and example of love ultimately begins with what? Humility. Humility. You think of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, existing eternally as God, he didn't consider that equality of God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to, a thing to be held on to, but rather he laid aside all the privileges of his deity. He came to his creation. He took on the form of a bondservant so that he could be hung upon a wooden cross while he bore the spiritual, unbridled, unreserved wrath of his father on your behalf. That is love in action, and it begins with humility. Humility is laying down every privilege and every right imaginable for the good, for the spiritual good of another. And far be it from us, dear friends, to ever, ever, ever consider that we even get close to reaching the end of that line of humility and that line of self-denial. Because you will never be, I will never be God of very God and lay aside deity to come to serve 
something that we have created. You cannot, you will not, you never can, you never will out-sacrifice your Savior. But you're called to be conformed to His image. You're called to follow after His pattern and standard. To follow the pattern of Christ's love, you must follow the pattern of His humility. To follow the pattern of His love, you must follow the pattern of His humility. John continues on, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. Let me just highlight, John doesn't say we ought to kind of maybe be willing to get kind of close to the love of Jesus. He says we ought to be willing to lay down our lives for one another without caveat, without qualification. Just think about that. How far short do you fall? How far short do I fall in willingness to lay down our lives for one another, for one another's spiritual betterment and benefit? Now, none of us are Jesus, okay? So let's make this clear. You cannot save another by laying down your life for them. I cannot save someone by laying down my life for them. But the mindset is that we ought to be willing to give up everything for the sake of plucking a brother or sister off of a dangerous path, maybe of sin or temptation or something else that is harmful for their soul. Apply this to our homes as parents. What do you lay down, moms and dads, grandparents even, what in your life do you lay down and lay aside in order to teach and to show your children the gospel? That's what we're talking about here, spiritual benefit, spiritual advancement. What do you lay aside so that your children can see and can hear and can understand the gospel? Do you lay aside your leisure time? Do you lay aside your hobbies? Do you lay aside your job? Do you lay aside sin? What are you not willing to give up for the opportunity to share and to show Christ to those precious little souls that are entrusted to your care? Those years will pass in the blink of an eye. What do you do to invest the gospel and the truth into those that you claim to love? Friends, how far short we fall. How much we need Christ's grace and his help. But the instruction is plain. All that's left for us is to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the instruction that is before us. So let's keep thinking practically about this idea of laying down our lives of sacrificial love. So uh, apart from literally dying for another, how do we show, how did Christ show selfless, sacrificial love? Humility, of course, really jumps to the top of the list, but we've already talked about that. So what are some other ways that Jesus showed sacrificial love? I think firstly, he gave of his energy to others without reserve. Think of the times that we see that Jesus had to withdraw from the people Because physically and spiritually, he was utterly exhausted and needed to go to be with his father, to be refreshed and to be renewed. Jesus willingly suffered the loss of his reputation for the sake of the truth. Do you realize that he shed tears because he wanted to see people come to faith? Not because he was worried about the suffering that he would endure. Sure, that grieved him. But when he shed tears over his people, Jerusalem, it was because he wanted them to come to know him as Savior. He gave up his reputation for the sake of proclaiming the truth. He didn't only give himself for the sake of building the kingdom by preaching to the lost, 
But he also gave fully of himself, investing deeply in his close group of disciples. Sacrifice of time and energy, physical and spiritual time and energy. Jesus gave that to instruct and to prepare those 12 men for future ministry. What do you give up to invest in the life of a younger Christian so that you might build them up in the faith? What do you give up as a newer Christian in order to be mentored and in order to be invested in by someone who has walked many years in the faith? Both of those are examples of love, loving Christ and loving others. Calvin wrote, and this is a longer quote, but I think it's beneficial. Calvin wrote about this example of Christ, this pattern of Christ. He says, there is this difference between us and Christ. The virtue and benefit of our death obviously cannot be the same because the wrath of God is not pacified by our blood, nor is life procured by our death, nor is punishment due to others suffered by us. So Calvin makes clear that it's not the same. But he says, the Apostle John, in this comparison, did not have in view the end or effect of Christ's death, but he meant only that our life should be formed according to Christ's example. Our lives should be formed by what we witness in Christ. We should strive with all we have to follow the pattern and example of Christ's love. Spurgeon, this wouldn't be a Reformed sermon if we didn't have Calvin and Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote about this verse, True love is not satisfied with expressing itself in words. Love must express itself in deeds. Love delights in sacrifices. It rejoices in self-denials. The more costly the sacrifice, the better love is pleased to make it. If your love is like Christ, it must express itself in deeds. It must delight in making sacrifices. And your love must rejoice in denying yourself. Turn all those statements into questions. Does my love express itself in deeds? Does my soul delight in making loving sacrifices? And I don't just mean for those people who, who you get something from when you, when you love them, but those people who are brothers and sisters and you may get no return. Does your soul rejoice in self-denial for the sake of loving one another? And that really leads us into verses 17 and 18. Love's practice. Love's practice. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We've seen what our love proves. We've seen who we pattern our love after. And now we see the, the details of how do we practice this love. And really, there's two components, physical and spiritual. And John begins with the clear instruction that genuine love meets physical needs. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Do you see there again that John is pointing this inward into the church? Sees his brother in need. He doesn't say sees another person, but sees a brother in need. It's like when Paul wrote in Galatians 6. Verse 10, so then while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Matthew Henry said, it pleases God that some Christians should be poor for the exercise of charity and love from those who are rich. He continued, it pleases the same God that some Christians have the world's good that they may exercise their grace in communicating those gifts to the poor. 
Effectively, God's will and design for the church is that the church proves itself to be the church by this outworking of love. If you have the world's goods, you go find a brother or sister and meet every need that you can. Show the love of Christ by helping those who do not have what you have. You know, this should be no question to us. When there's a brother or sister in need, we joyfully and quickly and fully meet the need. You know, we have questions sometimes when, when people come in, you know, do we, do, ought we meet the needs of someone just off the street and, and we want to be wise and, and not help someone who's going to just go and waste that money on things that will send them deeper into sin. But when it's a brother or sister, we meet that need immediately and we do it with joy and we do it without reserve. We have to balance this question, this next question, with wisdom and discernment and a generous and gracious spirit. I want to ask you, when is the last time that you have sought out a way to give away financial resources? You know, just real practical. When is the last time that you have went out and looked for a need within the local church that you could meet? Just think about it. Wrestle with that some this afternoon. When's the last time that you sought to take something that the Lord has blessed you with and use it for the good and the betterment of a brother or sister? And John shows how far this exhortation goes. He says, if you see a brother in need and you close your heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? A generous and giving heart is evidence that the Lord is in you, that his spirit is in you, and that he's given you life through Christ. John does not stop there. He goes on, verse 18, Little children, not us love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Just like faith without works is dead, love without deed is dead. To, to see a need and fail to meet it shows that you lack love. John doesn't just say that we love indeed. You can go out and meet a physical need, but if you don't bring the truth of God to bear, if you don't love indeed and in truth, you miss the mark. You miss the whole point. There are times that we could help one another in difficult situations, but if you just go provide the physical help that's needed, you miss an opportunity to bring the truth of God to bear on somebody's life. Maybe there's a sin that got them into this position. Maybe there needs to be a willingness to give up something in their life to, to be more responsible with their resources. Bring God's truth to bear at every opportunity. This is, I think, often the most clarifying difference between the world's love and the church's love. Because there are people in the world, we've all seen them, who are probably often even more generous with, with physical things than a lot of us are. But all they do is they just go and give away money and things and they help others and they never give the truth because they don't have any truth to give. But that should be what separates the church and the world. We love in deed and in truth. The ultimate show of love is to point another to the one who is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To love one another is to point one another to the truth. And this is a prime reason, I think, friends, that a lot of our giving, the most of our giving, probably should be done and given through the local church. Because it's in the local church that we're able to love in deed and in truth. You, you can go give to other ministries or other charities, but you really have no say, no ability to see if they're loving in deed and in truth. You might go see the things that they help or the things that they produce, but you don't know if the gospel is going forth. And you certainly don't have an opportunity many of those times to go and bring the truth to bear. So let us love indeed and in truth. Now, 
In closing, I promised you that we were going to look at an example of Jesus doing exactly this. Maybe many of you know where we're going to go with this. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. The story of the feeding of the 5,000. Is there a more clear showing of Jesus' caring for the poor and the needy? Let's read John 6. Verse, we'll start at verse 33. We're just going to read a couple verses here. The people saw them going, and many recognized that this was Jesus and his disciple, and they ran together on foot from all the cities, and they arrived at this place before Jesus. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you know how that goes on, right? That Jesus feeds them. He meets their physical needs. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They were a tired, ragged, hungry people, physically and spiritually. They were like people without a leader, sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus fed them and sent them on their way. No, that's not what happened. Verse 34, look at the end. He saw them. He felt compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, Mark doesn't record all that teaching, but I think we can rest assured that Jesus gave them the gospel, that he pointed them to their need for faith and repentance. He was not merely compassionate in showing them, uh, giving them bread to meet their physical need, but he gave them the bread of life so that they would never hunger again. This is the purest and highest practice of love. You joyfully and willingly meet every physical need you can, but we do it realizing that this love, this meeting physical needs can never trump and can never be without meeting the great spiritual need of others, the great need of being pointed to Christ. So may we display this personal, sacrificial love of Jesus to one another. May we display it also to the world, but know that as we show sacrificial love to the world, we must always bring the gospel and the truth to bear. As we think about love, Dear friends, may we lift our eyes from this, this world, and what we can see. When we think about love, may we lift our eyes and fix them upon our Savior. Because that is the ultimate pattern. He is the ultimate example that he gave his life. That he calls you to faith and repentance and then gives you life freely and abundantly and eternally. May we be transformed. May we be conformed to the image of Christ. May we love one another in deed and in truth. May we, the church, be the church. May we be filled with the Spirit. May we love one another. And may we glorify God in all things. Let's pray.